Hello everyone, my name is Andrew and welcome back to MIR Meets. Will Stansel is a research fellow at the Institute on Metropolitan Opportunity. He's been pretty prominent when it comes to online discourse and punditry related politics in general because of his quite vocal argument online about the way that Democrats are framing messaging surrounding the economy. Essentially, he believes that they need to give out much stronger and more positive vibes about the economy because he believes that a lot of the time, the way that voters think about whether it be politicians or how well the economy is doing or who they should vote for or just anything political in general when it comes to the way that the average voter thinks is less governed by policy and statistics and more governed by the general vibes and the vibes matter infinitely more than whatever numbers you can use to quantify the situation. So we talk a lot about that and the way that that shapes his views. For example, we talk a lot about how the economy is doing and why large segments of the American population have levels of consumer sentiment about the economy that doesn't really map onto the numbers and statistics that we see about the economy. And we also talk quite a little bit about how he thinks that the media narratives should frame things like concerns surrounding Biden's age or just the incentives of mainstream journalism in general and the way that it affects people's perceptions of both the left and the right. Hope you enjoy. All right, you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Will Stansel, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto this podcast. Yeah. Um, so I guess just to to start with a little bit of table setting. So obviously you're you're very known on for with regards to like people that are like extremely terminally online when it comes to politics <laughs> and electoral politics and the economy. And I think I think just for the sake of brevity, I might have to skip over the entire like Twitter war that you're going in with oh, certain yeah. people. Please yeah. Skip over yeah. It. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, just to start, um, how left-leaning are you if let's say that there's like a scale from zero to ten <laughs> where like like I don't know, maybe maybe like so tell me like maybe even these this specific characterization is something you would protest. But what let's say like what what would you say to like like let's say like on a scale from four to ten, like a four is like Maddie Glazes and like a nine mm-hmm. is Freddie DeBoer. How okay. left are you? Uh well, I would say I'm probably I'm probably a seven or an eight. All right. So pretty progressive. I'm pretty progressive, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess when it comes to you being pretty progressive, how has that how has that shaped your view on how the economy is doing and how Democrats have sort of the policies that they've enacted during Biden's first term that has affected the American economy? Yeah. Give us your overview, like bird's eye view on like how Biden's policies have affected the economy. Well, I would say that I'm not I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on economic policy. I'm, I I research civil rights. So so I don't want to get into, you know, I go into like like the details of of the uh, economic of, you know, various economic policies. I would say that broadly speaking, you have um, um, some pretty progressive stuff. You've got the big stimulus bill, the big covid bill. Um, it's it's you know, you have uh Biden's been very supportive of labor. He's been probably more supportive of labor than any U.S. president up till now. Um, he's been pushing, although it expired, he's been pushing for policies like um, the well, re-expanding the child tax credit, 
uh, which had which was you know a big blow against child poverty. Um, and in general, it seems as if he has been pursuing what I would describe as a full employment economy. That he has been uh, making he's been he has been you know across the board pursuing policies that would prioritize employment um, and you know wages for workers and worker power over uh, uh, the priorities of, of, you know, bosses and management companies who would often prefer cheaper labor and and just a, a labor market with more slack in it um, makes it easier for them to de you know, demand uh, longer hours, lower pay from their employees, weakens unions and the like. And so I'd say he's been pretty progressive. Um, and, and certainly the other thing I'd say is that regardless of whatever his policy has been, that the outcomes in the economy have certainly been seemed pretty regressive. You've seen you know a lot of growth. Um, uh, the economy's been very strong, and really remarkably, uh, the strength of the economy has fallen. Um, has has mostly benefited people at the lower end. I mean, it's it's uh, lower income workers that have seen the fastest wage gains. Uh, you know, the bottom quartile, the bottom decile. Um, it's also you've also seen gaps between groups like you know black and white workers narrowing and stuff like that. So so it's just been a very progressive outcomes. Um, you know all hit the policy decisions aside. Yeah. Um. So I guess when I first got you on, I was I was gonna try to make this the whole thing of like why do like why do Americans think the economy is terrible when it's actually doing well? <laughs> but then then the tide sort of changed, and now like Americans think more favorably about the economy. They I do, think. although still it's still Go kind of it. under what you would expect. Um, so, so we, you know, previously we were in a situation where, where economic sentiment was extraordinarily low. I mean, it was like as bad or worse than in 2009 and the depths of the great recession where, you know, you just had, you, you, you know, horrendous recession or worse since the great depression. And, and, and yet somehow people in 2022, 2023, uh, seem to believe that we were in that situation if you, you know, at least comparable sentiment to that, which, which is just hard to explain what's happened. And it's really started in November, December, and has continued is that there's been kind of a rapid turnaround um, in how people perceive the economy. Um, and now um, it, it, it's the best it's been probably in about three years. But it's still, I mean, you know, if you look at those sort of raw metrics, uh, the economy now is probably comparable to just about anything we've ever seen, certainly in modern times. And yet people are still mostly negative about it. Um, it's better than it was. But so it's like pretty bad. they've gone from being extremely negative to being mildly negative. Is that what right. you're saying? Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, so so it's not quite as dramatic where you can say we have the best economy and the worst sentiment. So that was a really striking, a really striking contrast. But now you're saying we have the best economy and like pretty bad sentiment. And that still is pretty striking. Yeah. But I guess one important clarification is that even back when people thought that the economy was terrible, when by all metrics, I don't think it was at all. Like they were still very careful to say to like pollsters and the like that their specific economic situation was pretty good. Like this is the sort of thing that Derek Thompson would call like the everything is terrible, but I'm fine syndrome where like they think that they're doing well economically, but they don't like they don't try to they, they don't really put two and two together in terms of thinking that, that like that's a suggestion that the economy as a whole is doing well. They just think that they themselves are doing well. Right. Um, I mean, there's different many different measures. Um and so kind of, you know, it, it's it's sort of it's a little little uh, uh, wobbly depending on which one you're using. But in general, yeah, people tended to perceive uh, their own circumstances much more favorably than they did the economy as a whole, um, which is one of the clues that something weird was happening, that that if you just sort of aggregated how people felt about their own individual circumstances, then you would expect people to have like pretty strong you know, pretty favorable views. And yet it wasn't that people, you know, the, the sort of the median person believed that they were doing well and the economy was doing badly. 
Yeah, and now they now it's like they still think they're doing well. Now they think that the economy is doing like mildly badly instead of it very badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess the question is: To what extent do you think the median Americans' views on the economy poses a struggle for Democrats that are trying to win the twenty twenty four election? Because like like back in the past, the general the general sentiment for how to win the election would just be the whole it's the economy stupid quote about like however the economy is doing is just like an enormous factor in how well like a party is going to do in an election. And I guess you could argue that that effect has diminished slightly if you were to look at the 2022 midterms. But I still think it has the potential to be pretty potent. What do you think? Um, well, so that's that's sort of the, the reason I got on to this topic is because I think that these things are all less connected than people believe. Um, I think that this idea that there's sort of a mechanical translation of economic sentiment or, you know, structural factors on the ground or fundamental, you know, empirical measurable factors on the ground into political outcomes, that, you know, a certain set of, of, of conditions will create a certain set of predictable political outcomes. I don't think that's true. I think that I think that, you know, a given set of economic conditions or, you know, any other kind of conditions really can, in some circumstances, create one political outcome and in other circumstances, create another. And so initially, one of the you know ways of showing this was to say, well, you've got this sort of very strong set of, of measurable conditions, and yet everyone's miserable about the economy. <laughs> now we've sort of moved it back one step where we say, okay, now everyone feels better about the economy, and yet Joe Biden doesn't seem to be getting any benefit from it. Um, and so so ultimately, it's like, I, I think that that the way you, the way, you know, what, what this all points to is that you really cannot, there, there is no trick to, to escape the sort of need to make an affirmative case for a political party or candidate that that you have um or I mean I guess it could be a it could be a negative case you can make a case against Trump but but the point is that you know you cannot escape this this sort of the poli the political part of politics um the the part that deals with you know public belief and public consensus if you just if you just try to say we're going to change some stuff on the ground and then this will naturally flow up through the system and suddenly will be really popular and win all the elections i mean which is sort of how democrats have operated for most of my adult life it turns out it doesn't really work that way that you can do everything right you can make everything you know you can you can make things better you can by any given metric improve conditions and then just maybe get no benefit no get no credit for it and no political benefit yeah, I guess the question is like trying to understand which variables are exogenous and which variables are endogenous. Um, but then I guess you met, you brought up something that I thought was really interesting, like the whole thing about how now like consumers are finally starting to accept that the economy is pretty good, at least a little mm -hmm. bit. But Biden is not getting credit for it. So I guess to that, that provides a neat transition, I think. What would you say to the idea that in general, a lot of people don't really give Biden credit for the good stuff that he's done because he seems so slow and old that like they don't think that like a lot of the good stuff is because of him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's totally plausible. I think, I mean, I think it's a little complicated. I'm not totally sure why Biden is struggling. I think some of it probably, a lot of it probably is just sort of his public presentation, uh, which, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think that people can tend to overstate how, you know, he, he looks old, but I mean, by most accounts, he's pretty sharp. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately politics is a popularity contest. And and if you just don't present well publicly and people, everything, you know, everything people see from you is this kind of decrepit, you know, lethargic public image, it's going to be really hard to surmount that. And so, you know, one of the effects of it probably is, is that people, you know, it's totally possible to me that people see by and they think, well, anything that's happening, it's not because of this guy, look at this guy. Um 
you know, I don't think it's a very good way of thinking about it. But uh, yeah, I, I totally believe that many people are. Yeah, I guess this this sort of goes against like the the traditional wisdom. Like if if I like two or three years ago, if I was talking to someone like David Shore, he would mm-hmm. essentially say that like, yeah, they're not giving they're not giving Biden that much credit, but that's not a bad thing as long as they don't hate him and think that he's he's like mid. That's still mm-hmm. better because like that's what the median voter wants. But maybe maybe. Maybe parts of that weren't vindicated, or it's also possible that, like, maybe consumer sent, like, I guess yeah. the quote unquote consumer sentiment, but in this case, consumer sentiment about elected officials, maybe that has also changed over time because of the fact that he's the incumbent and also the incentives of the mainstream media, if you want to get into One that. One thing that you heard a lot when, in 2020, a lot, and then in 2021, some, is that, you know, you'd hear this idea that it's good that Joe Biden was boring that Americans were tired of a president you had to think about every day. Donald Trump was in the front top, front page every single day. You know, he's top of mind for a lot of people every single day. And he had this guy who was quiet and kind of invisible, you know, just sort of quietly succeeding behind the scenes and that this was a big, you know, big asset to Biden politically. And I think the last few years have, have sort of tested idea that idea. And I think that that idea has some weaknesses. And, and you know, the reality is, like I said, that politics is a popularity contest. It's hard to win a popularity contest if you're invisible. Um, people like to think of the president as a leader. They like to think the president as a as a you know personality that they can sort of, you know, admire or respect or enjoy. And um Biden has just not been able to really do that. I mean in large part because of his age and because he comes off as kind of wizened and and uh, uh old. And um yeah, I mean, I think that's being reflected pretty heavily in his popularity right now. Now, whether or not that, you know, whether or not the the campaign and the forcing the choice of him versus Trump changes that, I mean, I, I couldn't predict. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there's I think that there is a tendency among certain people to to treat politics as as a, you know, almost like a as a mathematical problem where you just sort of try and figure out like what the aggregate, you know, in the aggregate where the median view is and then whoever's closest to it will win. Um, but that just sort of takes the politics out of politics that that takes the the need to, to, you know, inspire people to make them feel things, to make them think, to spread your ideas. And, and um, I think we're kind of seeing the, the cost of that way of thinking right now with Trump um, beating Biden pretty consistently. Yeah. So I guess uh, to be blunt, do you think, Biden's age is a huge handicap in terms of him trying to win. I think without a doubt, it's his biggest liability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've seen this all along. I mean, I've complained about this for years. And I, it's funny because now, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess people know me as a kind of a Biden supporter. But I mean, if you go back and look at me from 2021, 2022, I'm like, Biden's too old. Biden's too old. This is going back to haunt you. And people say, oh, no, no, no. He beat Trump. Trump's almost the same age. And no, it's, it's. Biden has just become coded as old in a way Trump has not, even though they're pretty close. He's become coded as incoherent in a way that Trump has not, even though I would argue Trump is much more incoherent. Um, and it really hurts him. Um, and it's just very hard to escape it because it's so it's so visible in any public appearance he makes. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's undoubtedly the biggest challenge. I think a lot of the other stuff is actually downstream of that is people rationalizing sort of their their frustration with his age. Yeah, I guess. I guess then it's now it's now it's the time to discuss options because mm-hmm. like like we, we, we I think we have a little we're, we're kind of constrained in terms of the options we have it's it's mm-hmm. too late for a primary so like what we could do is we could just like you know what decide let's just like decide you know what we're just going to stick with Biden we're going to do everything we can to make him campaign as much as possible or um, Ezra Klein recently floated the idea that we should try to get Biden to like actively drop out and then like 
th they could like host an open primary where like the delegates just choose someone on their own and then have like just all back them. Like, do you, do you think we, do you think I we think should? It's too, I think it's too late. Um, personally, I mean, you know, I was, I've never been quite sure whether or not Biden running was a good idea. You know, I, I felt like it, it was taking a lot of risks. I think, I think there's risks, you know, that fear has been vindicated in some ways, but the reality is, is that, you know, if you wanted to have run a, if you wanted to run a primary, you needed to start it about I mean, a year ago. Um, we're pretty far along. Biden himself doesn't seem to have any inclination to leave, which you know, I mean, we can't force him out, and and it just be it just be a mess at this point. I think that I think that you know, no candidate's going to be perfect. Um, I don't see any way to change it. You know, obviously, perfect world, we'd sub him out for someone who was just like him, but but twenty years younger. Um, you know, but we, we can't. So it's just, it's just, we, you, you go to the war with the army you have. Okay. So go to the war with the army you have. I guess by that logic, we should instead focus on like the Matt Iglesias argument that we should just get him on the campaign trail and get him to campaign infinitely more than he currently is. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that <laughs> that could work. Um, the reality is though, that he's you know the extent that he the the problem he's facing is it's really easy to take clips of him speaking you know it, just as it is with anyone and edit them and say look he's doesn't make any sense in this bit and then then it spreads like wildfire and then more and more people have reinforced that he's he's you know out of his mind or he's senile or whatever um i'm not sure hitting the campaign trail is going to help with that because no one actually watches the campaign stuff i mean so there's very few people if people did watch the campaign stuff, you'd have. I think you, you, you know, there'd be a little less confusion about how how coherent Trump is. I mean, Trump is on the campaign trail, and and he talks like just talks gobbledygook, and no one seems to notice. Um, you know, I think the key is again, it's, it's, it's like the economy that there is a narrative, there is a public narrative that Biden is old, that he's senile. Uh, it is widespread and has been reinforced, particularly by this her special counsel report. Um, and I think that. Uh, uh, you have to find a way to fight the public narrative, and and I, I, you know, it's a difficult one to fight because because um, it's hard to get someone to write an article saying Biden is fine. <laughs> but I, I think that I think that you know, frankly, that does seem to be the takeaway. Of people who actually work with them, and it seems to be the takeaway of reporters that interview him. said even the takeaway from what I've heard from Republicans that have to work with him in private. And um, you know, I think that that just has to be you know there has to be an effort to sort of make the you know get a counter narrative circulating. Uh, and in place of this this sort of like thing that has bubbled up that Republicans are pushing so hard that he's just like a vegetable. Uh, counter narrative in which space is specifically. Yeah, well, I think I think that I mean you know the I mean yeah, the New York Times should write an article about instead of saying people you know out there third parties have concerns about Biden's age, like do some reporting on the question, like answer it for us, tell us you know what what is the consensus among people that deal with him. You know, as I understand it, it's that he's fine, that he's old, but he's fine. Um, and I think that that, you know, reporting, you know, reporting that reality as opposed to to um, reporting, you know, the sort of the the rumors and attacks that are circulating, you know, from people who are removed from him is is kind of the only solution here. Um, also, the other thing to do is and there's been some of this partly because Nikki Haley's been pushing it um, is that, you know, Donald Trump is not exactly. Uh, the most um, mentally healthy person, I think, um, kind of never has been. 
and and reporting someone his incoherence and some of the stuff that's happened he said um and saying you know it's not you know making this not exclusively a biden problem but there isn't you know this is a very difficult thing to deal with and and this why you know i think it's always been the biggest reason to be concerned about biden and still is yeah yeah i guess that like like so trying to get the wheels turning in my head about how to frame this um do you think that like so trying to get Biden like on the campaign trail might be bad because people will take his gaps out of context. So instead the goal I is, think, to... I don't think it's bad so much as I just don't think people see it. I mean, I think that, the, I think that there's a, that people don't recognize. I mean, you know, the way I see it is one story repeated a million times is a lot more influential than doing a hundred rallies that no one ever talks about. And so you know, if you're thinking about sort of, sort of, uh, uh, you know, what has the most influence, what gives you the most bang for your buck, you're much better off trying to get that narrative going. that's going to get repeated a thousand, a million times, than to try and do, you know, spending massive amounts of time and effort doing rallies and stuff that no one sees. I just don't think. I think that you got to think about it in terms of, you know, the thing about media coverage is that there's just no requirement that what is covered, what is, you know, what dominates the coverage, be proportional to like what dominates in in real life. Um, and so, like, you know, and, and rallies are rallies are tough and there's a lot, I mean, a lot of time and effort goes into that. And there's, there's opportunity cost to that. Yeah. So so the goal should be trying to like, like, are you, are you saying that like, like mainstream news outlets should like, like try to make like butter up the the perception of Biden? No, I'm that... saying is that Democrat, Democrats need to understand that how mainstream news outlets talk, talk about Biden has an impact. And if you're a Democrat, you need, instead of just saying, well, Biden's fine, I went to a rally and saw him, no one else saw him, and you know it wasn't reported on, but I saw it and he was fine. I, I think what you guys say is, how do we change the narrative in the mainstream news? How do we, how do we change the narrative in social media? Um, it's tough. There isn't, there isn't a silver bullet solution to it. There's no formula for doing it. But, but that's what you need. You know, if, if the news narrative becomes Biden is fine or Biden's okay and Republican, this is a Republican smear attack, um, then, then, you know, or even, you know, that interest in narrative and, you know, to, to a certain extent, that's going to change public perception. And that's going to be seen more than any rally you ever do. Yeah, well, I feel like you, I feel like that idea might not fly well with certain people that would assume that, like, that is essentially making mainstream news more partisan. Well, yeah, I mean, that's is the problem is that Republicans don't have the slightest bit of, of hesitation trying to push partisan narratives in mainstream news. I mean, that was literally what this terror report was. He writes this whole thing. I mean, the report was framed. Wait, could you explain the, the her report to the people that aren't as terminally online as us? Yeah, the her report was so, you know, that Biden was being, you know, had there's a special counsel to investigate Biden for his document retention. He had, he had some, a handful of classified documents that were, you know, found in file boxes after he was vice president. Um, Mary Garland appointed a Republican special uh, 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 counsel to to investigate this and basically, you know, find come to a charging decision whether or not to charge Biden for you know retention crimes. The same thing that Donald Trump is being charged for because he did this much more spectacularly and much more intentionally and talked about the documents and everything. So this Republican special counsel didn't find that Biden had really committed any wrongdoing that could be charged. But in the process of releasing his report exonerating Biden, put in lots of, um, you know, lines basically saying Biden you know, didn't seem to know where he was or didn't seem to know what year things had happened, um, said, you know, he had thought that Biden's defense would be that he was a forgetful old man. Um, generally speak, generally just tried to sort of play up the sense that Biden was, you know, 
mentally mentally subpar. And you know, I, I think what has happened is is as more information has come out out about this, it's been you know it's it was very partisan. Uh, I know the DO some DOJ people objected. Um, and as more information has come out, it's, it's kind of looking more partisan. For instance, one of the things they said is Biden couldn't remember the year his when his son died, but it turns out he could remember the exact day his son died. He was just sort of, you know, gave the wrong year, which is like a kind of normal thing if you've had a loss of family member um, to think about, you know, time of year, but not necessarily like the calendar date. And um, so, but this, so this was really, this was really kind of put out there in order to influence, to, to sort of drive these media narratives that Biden is, you know, oh, raise questions about Biden's age, I was memory. Um, and I and I think that that Democrats are really hesitant to play these games. They think they think they sort of want to you know keep their hands clean um, from the media, and they want they want to assume that the media will you know ultimately come um, to the right conclusion and report the truth. And if as long as they're you know they they play fair and do the right thing, that it'll eventually reach the people. And I and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that you know both sides need to play this game. If that, I mean you know it's not it's a little bit seedy, but. But getting your narratives into the public mind is an important part of politics. And it's one that Democrats have neglected. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess the like, so I, I one of the, the counterpoints that I would anticipate certain people making would be the whole idea that ma- the, the goal of mainstream news is to report the truth rather than like calling balls and strikes. So I think if I were to try to like maybe steel man the points that you're making, mm-hmm. maybe it's the sort of thing where like, they they have a tendency to call balls and strikes in in like an op in opposed in an opposition direct opposition to whatever side they're seen to be favorable towards as a way of being seen as nonpartisan as a whole. Yes, I mean one of the things you have to keep in mind about the mainstream media is it's an institution, and like all institutions, it has you know it's actually it's a series of institutions, and like all institutions, it has they have incentives. Um, and so one of the incentives of of mainstream political media is you know they very they have a very strong phobia of seeming partisan which means that for instance you saw this a lot during the trump administration where there'd be an endless succession of bad news about trump because he'd say clownish stuff his policies would be you know he would he would want absurd things he just wasn't very familiar with government um you know he's kind of crooked frankly um and the result of this was that whenever there was a good story about Trump or something could even be like plausibly spun as positive, the media jumped all over it because it was like it was like a golden nugget for them where they could report that favorably and prove to everyone that they were not, you know, averse to Trump, that they were they were looking for ways to seem fair and balanced. And I think that, you know, and I think that these these kinds of dynamics are, are run all the way through the mainstream media. I mean, it's the same thing with Democrats like like, you know, they love when there is a scandal, uh, uh, you know, because there are so many scandals around Trump. You know, you saw this with Hillary Clinton when there's a scandal around Hillary Clinton, even if it doesn't really make a ton of sense, like her email scandal. No one really ever understood what it, you know, the allegation was or why it was all that serious. But they talked at it nonstop because it was sort of it was sort of a balancing uh, a thing for them. It helped them prove that they weren't they weren't, you know, more favorable to one side. And so understanding these dynamics and recognizing them and then playing into them is is really important if you're going to operate in politics. And Democrats just seem to not want to do that. They seem to think that this is beneath them in some way often, and it really hurts them. Well, I do think that there have been times where the mainstream media has been disproportionately biased, like towards progressives in a way that I think, like belies the truth. Like I think their their coverage of the lab leak theory was kind of reprehensible. Oh, um, so, uh, oh, well, I, 
Yeah, but I don't think we should go on another 20-minute yeah, tangent. You and I disagree on the lab leak, I think, then. Yeah, but, like, it's, it, let's not go on another... Yeah, we don't need to go on down that yeah. road. Yeah, but, like, I guess, yeah, so, like, I am a lot more sympathetic to the ideas that, like, certain, like, mainstream news outlets often do contain a progressive bias. Well, um, and I will... And, but to be clear here, that did, this is... What we're talking about is specifically partisanship. So, like, like... You know, yes, everyone's got everyone's got a you know, no one's got a view from nowhere. Everyone's got a point of view. Um, includes people in the news, you know, media. Um, but in a, in a partisan political context, in the especially in the U.S., um, there's a really there's a strong pressure to not seem like you're favoring one side versus the other. And so even and so in some ways, one of the things that I think you see is that with mainstream political news, because there is sort of a sense that they exist in this progressive bubble and they're they're very self-aware of this and they talk about it a lot, that they that actually increases the pressure for them, they feel, to to, you know, to repudiate those those accusations by jumping on anything that can show how neutral they are and so oh. and so you know i think that this is part of why you see this dynamic yeah but like then like my response to that would be that that maybe they're they're punching left in the wrong way maybe they should do more to like punch like punch left towards people that supported draconian school closures or punch left at people that like like are extremely opposed to the SAT for reasons that I think are dumb rather than being opposed to like, like coverage of Biden that I think is really unfair. Yeah, but the, the problem is there's no constituency. So, you know, the, the reason you get this, you get the partisan uh, paranoia is there's a large constituency of people, Republicans, that they are not, they, they don't want, you know, to have accusing them of, of bias. Um, there's not the, you know, although of course there's constituency for, you know, other left-wing stuff, it's just not on the same scale. You don't have the same institutional uh, power that you do with the GOP and Republican Party. And so there's just not the same incentives. So maybe if the country were different and you had just, you know, like a third of the country were, were you know, super left-wing people, um, it'd be different. But, but you know, that's just not the reality of the United States. So maybe mainstream news is biased both leftward and rightward in some of the worst ways possible at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, again, I think all all news sources, all information sources are necessarily have a point of view. They're necessarily biased. I mean, there's no deny, you know, there's no getting around that. The problem, I think, is that I, the way I've described in the past is that you have two ways of being neutral. You can be neutral like a judge, which is that you try to objectively evaluate the facts no matter where they lead you. So, you know, you, you're not favoring either party, but maybe one party ends up having the better argument to be being right in the matter. And then you say, well, that guy wins. That guy was right this time. Or you can be neutral like Switzerland. <laughs> you can be neutral in that there are different people around you that disagree, and you're just going to try and position yourself between all of them so that you're you're equidistant from all the parties. And that looks neutral. Well, like on, like equidistant on every issue or just the yeah, issues right, that so are like high possible, but You just doesn't feel like you're like, you know, so you don't feel like you're favoring anybody. So no one doesn't feel like you're on anyone's side. And... That looks neutral, and that you know you're, you're. But what it does is allows the parties to manipulate you. Like so, you know, the Republicans can make some wild claim. I mean, you see this a lot, where you'll see some wild claim being made about you know Joe Biden, and the news media says, "Well, what if we said it was half true?" <laughs> you know, and that's a way of sort of splitting the difference. And it, and it didn't. It's it's an attempt to sort of preserve that sort of that that equal distance between the parties. But it, but it also puts makes the media subject to the actions of the parties in a way that like a judicial neutrality would not do. Yeah, so maybe an ideal mainstream news would be more left-leaning in some ways that people really care about, but it would also be more right-leaning in ways that aren't as salient. Well, I would say that the ideal mainstream news would be that reporters understand that they have they have a bias, they have a perspective, I mean, just being a human being, and that 
you know, they're aware of it. They, they, they talk about it if they, if they need to. But then they just attempt to objectively evaluate things without worrying about how the parties they are talking about will react. Okay, so are are you familiar with like David Leonhardt and like the morning newsletter? Yes, of course. Yeah, do you think that like he does a good job doing what you're saying? I think on some things yes, and on some things no. I think I think that he um, he is a sort of a different, you know. I guess I'd have to think I'd have to think about a specific issue, but. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't attempt, he does do a thing where he's, you know, I mean, he does try, he uses a lot of data, um, you know, sometimes well, and sometimes I think less well, but, but he is, he is, um, you know, I think the New York Times, for instance, is actually one of the worst offenders in this respect, because they have, they because they have, you know, they value their appearance of, of credibility, you know, of, of, you know, neutrality so much, um, they have so much writing on it. Um, and that sometimes it's like it's it's the smaller places that feel the freedom to sort of to sort of, you know, say what they mean and, and not worry how people react. Um, and so, you know, so Linhart, I don't I don't know, you know, I'd have to I need to look at like a specific thing. But but, you know, the Times in general has, has been quite bad about this, in my opinion. I do agree, but keep going. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess. Yeah. So I I dis I disagree as someone who spent quite a bit of time over the past few months talking mm -hmm. to journalists from the times. Um, mm -hmm. I guess one thing that I will say is I think like what you're like, one of the reasons why I do want to push back against what you're saying about like how the media needs to be more forceful. I think, I think you could make the argument that in this specific case regarding Biden, it would be helpful. But for me, there's a little bit of a slippery slope where it's like, it's very easy to take that one specific argument and then use that and like your own confirmation bias to justify like trying to turn things into a progressive echo chamber. And I, I do think that like, if you were to like start it in that direction without any sort of qualifications about like, oh, here are some other specific ways that we're trying to, that we're going to try to be fair to the other side. It's very, it's very easy to just like take that and just keep going going and keep making like and and like it is possible that your approach would just end up making like mainstream news less credible and i that's why i do prefer the new york times over i think what your preference is i think that i think that you have a lot of um like a lot of the political coverage is it's i mean there's it, there's this art of, there's an attempt to put themselves in the eyes of someone else um and to imagine a person that like doesn't have a viewpoint and then to speak from that perspective. And I think that that doesn't really work because that person doesn't really exist. That, <clears throat> that instead what you're had, what you're doing is you're just giving a kind of distorted and ultimately kind of limp view of events. And it's like, you know, it's hard to make sense of, of politics without having some sort of perspective or narrative that you're coming from. And, and you reach a point where it's just like, there are not two, you know, there's not, there, there are lots of things that happen in the world that there are competing narratives on, but there's no neutral narrative that is just going to like capture both sides equally. Um, yeah. You know. But okay. So this is, I'm, I'm going to, this is something that I got from David Leonhardt that I, that is like sort of et, like etched into my brain. Like, so the whole thing about there's not like a neutral perspective where like each side is equally correct. So like, let, let's think of it in terms of ratios. Like, you know how people are good with 
like a hundred zero and people are good with 50 50 like like if there's like a coin flip people know like people are good at understanding like both both sides are equally like likely to land like heads or tails and like Mm -hmm. people are good at a hundred zero like this thing is definitely going to happen and this thing is not going to happen and like in terms of ratios maybe the the problem is that people are too too focused at thinking things either 50 50 or 100 zero like either this side is 100 percent right and that side is completely wrong or this side is 50% right. And this side is also 50% right. I don't think, like, I think it's very hard to do the t- type of coverage where like one side is 70% right. And the other side is 30% right. And I feel like, I feel like that's what David Leonhardt often does really well. Um, and I think that like, if, if you're just like, like sometimes I, yeah. Okay. So like, this is, let's only talk about this for like a few more minutes so that mm-hmm. we don't go way too deep into this meta discussion about mainstream news. But sure. I do think that, I do think that sometimes like criticizing both like both sides sometimes correctly, sometimes not correctly, is often there as a way to justify your own cognitive bias and like a refusal to like even admit that like the other side might even be like 30% correct. Yeah, I mean, look, no one everyone has biases, everyone has blind spots. I mean, no one's denying that. Um trying to account for those by the the way to deal with that is is self critique of your views, to try to come to you know better views. It is I do not think the way to deal with that is to say well, I'm going to just assume I'm you know thirty percent wrong and kind of like and kind of readjust. Okay, it. what what about like twenty percent wrong? No, I mean I'm saying you just you you should you should believe that you are a hundred percent correct. I mean not not to say that I mean, you can say that with the acknowledgement that you can say that with the acknowledgement that you're probably not that like you know there's things you're wrong about. But like you should be saying what you think is correct. You know, don't say I don't. You know, I'm going to assume that I'm like partly wrong. So I'm just going to tell you some stuff that I don't really believe in order to like balance or you, it. Or you could just that's call just, like, that, That's You're not going to be able to do that. You can't apply a filter to it like that. You just end up in this weird place where you, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Or you, you could know, just, but, you could just uh, like apply a little bit of, of a qualification instead of saying things with complete certainty. You should, you should just say, I think that this thing is probably correct. Right, and that's, that's why. That's fine. Yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, you, you, every, everyone knows. I mean, you know, sometimes people want you to qualify it, but like, like, <laughs> intrinsically anything you say is is your viewpoint and everyone knows that you know your viewpoint's your viewpoint you're not speaking with like the voice of god but but yeah if you want to qualify and make that explicit go ahead but what i'm saying is that the the kind of artificial thing you where people say you know they give two opinions and they don't really weigh in about which one's more right or maybe they say you know that's that's an attempt to get around this this dilemma uh, by applying what I would consider a kind of d- distorting filter on it, you know, where you're saying things you don't really believe or the evidence doesn't really support just in order to sort of like have it out there. And it's like, why would you do that? That's just making it, that makes things weird. <laughs> no, but I, th- I think that sometimes it's possible to go in the opposite direction where because of your own confirmation bias, you sort of think that some someone's doing a both sides thing just because they included a single sentence, like suggesting that there might be like a single point in favor of another side. I think it's well, like, I, just go ahead. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. You know, sure. It, it, you know, the, if someone wants to say, well, then the other side claims this, fine. But what I'm saying is that it's really, no, but like, like you might include really, that, and then you might get like 300 comments about people that are retroactively yeah, saying yeah. you must be both sizing the situation just because you included a single sentence. Okay, I mean, yeah, the reason the reason people are really attuned to this is because there are a lot of people out there that really are both sizing, and I mean, yeah, sure, there's some there's some like you know false positives in here where people think that it's happening, and it's not. You know, I mean, yeah, absolutely, but like, but like, this is a real problem. I mean, it's a real problem of people. You know, you have you have um Peter Baker at the New York Times is 
the worst. And he literally, there's articles out there where he talks about his approach to political issues. And he says, I try as hard as I can not to form an opinion. I don't vote. I don't think about policy issues. I try not to have an opinion about a policy issue. It's like, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not a helpful way of thinking about the world. You're intentionally blinding yourself to stuff in order to maintain neutrality. That's a bad approach. Now, you know, maybe there's a spectrum between him and David Leinhardt, but like, you know, certainly people like Peter Baker, Baker exist and like, they're actually Peter Baker's like probably one of the preeminent political reporters in the United States. I don't think that's very healthy. <laughs> I think when you mind if I said a bit something a bit blunt. Go ahead. I think that I think that you're not picking a little bit. I think you're you're trying to no. find like the, mo Peter, the mo Peter Baker is the top political writer at the top paper. No, He's but then like, there are there are like there are like dozens and dozens of top writers at the top paper. No, but he's a guy. If you have a news analysis at the Times of a breaking political event, there's like a 50-50 chance Peter Baker wrote it. And his colleagues aren't, you know, he's probably the worst in this respect, but his colleagues are still kind of doing the same thing. I mean, it's like, you know, he is he is of that culture. I mean, this is not a this is not a thing that is like a tiny number of political reporters. This this is the the primary you know, ethos of American political reporters. You know, I mean, there are obviously some that are better and worse and they're all different, but I'm saying that this is a real thing. Okay, I guess the reason why I still react kind of allergically to a lot of the stuff that you're saying right now is that I've met a lot of progressives that essentially use criticism as, of both sidesism as a way to justify their own confirmation biases and try to like, sort of like force their opinions onto others in a way that I think is very unhealthy. And yeah, I think that- I mean Go ahead. I mean, that's that's just the nature of being a partisan to having strong political beliefs. You know, you deal a lot, I'm sure, because of the circles you run in, you deal with a lot more progressives than conservatives. But I assure you that if you're talking to conservatives, they'd say a version of the same thing, which is that the political media is all liberal, you know, nonsense, and you shouldn't listen to any of that. You should listen to Fox News and OANN. And so, like, yeah, I mean, of course, you have a part, you know, people form partisan bubbles. Yes, that's a problem. The solution, though, is not really, you know, the, the sort of the sort of view from nowhere, sit in the middle thing is not a good solution to this. It is. Yeah, been a, but like sometimes you don't sit in the middle. You you still sit in favor of the left. But the fact that you gave like one or two acknowledgments and qualifications that might possibly support the right automatically turns you into a both sides. -er. I think that I that's think, I think that's the criticism, the very unfair criticism that people often have about David Leonhardt. Well, I'm not you know, I'm not here to debate. David Leonard, I guess, but but I am. But I'm saying in the context of U.S. political news, specifically electoral horse race political news in the United States, um, that that I would say the problem is the other way. That the problem is that there is a very strong incentive, and it's a very easy to see incentive. And you can you can talk to reporters about, it and they'll tell you it exists to to seem neutral between the parties, and uh, it, it filters into the coverage in a way that is that is not you know that, that I think distorts as much as it is it reveals all right um, i guess and i think i think that again and i want to separate that from like cult what i would consider more the cultural you know debates over you know regardless of where you follow them debates over school closures or or uh uh you know, whatever i mean i think or that like the media's coverage of the lab leak theory like that's yeah lab thing. leak whatever i mean you know I, I my point is that i'm talking specifically about horse race political news and that is where that is where this is the worst where the view from nowhere thing is the worst because that's where there's the strongest pushback and the strongest incentive to stay equidistant between two like very well established parties yeah i guess um 
I guess there are some aspects that I'm sympathetic sympathetic to your cause, and there are some aspects where I disagree. And I guess we're just gonna, um, <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, do you foresee to to change the subject? Do you see? Do you foresee the median Americans' views on the economy improving anytime? Like in the way that like it's it's gradually improved a little bit. Do you see it improving even more? Yes, I would say so. I think I don't, you know, I don't like making predictions because I think generally events are more complicated than people think and that the range of outcomes is wider than you would predict. But I think that it has sort of reached a level where these narratives you know, do tend to be a little bit self-sustaining. So unless there's some sort of something happens, which is always possible, that that, you know, the narrative has become the economy unexpectedly good the economy recovering, you know, economy is very strong. And I think that that would filter, you know, continue to filter through to, to just normies. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So like, let's, let's imagine some kind of like hypothetical where inflation does tick up. Like, you know, the whole thing about how yeah. often inflation comes in like two bouts. So like, what if like inflation died down over like the past year or two mm -hmm. and now it like, it ticks up again within the next few months. What, how, yeah, what I mean, would we do? If you have a giant thing in the, you know, giant spurt of inflation, then, you're going to have, you know, probably you'll get some really, you'll get some freaked out stories about it. It'll be, you know, all over the news. It'll be all over the political news because, you know, people think about in terms of the election. And I would imagine that that would have an impact. But, I, you know, I just, you know, I, it's it, one, of the, one of the things that I think is very difficult about my approach to thinking about these things that, that I think people struggle with is that I think that the, the you know, cause and effect here are like, loosely tied and not you know there's not like this this clear mechanism where you know x happens so therefore y happens and so you know people say well what happens if x happens i'm like i don't know <laughs> you know we just have to wait and see i mean you and i mean i think it's not i think I, so i think it's frustrating to people who sort of make their you know do you know their job is like predictions basically or you know but but also i think that if you look at history i mean like most of history is pretty unpredictable like most things that happen were not predicted in advance um, and so we just have to accept that our, you know, we have we have a the the future is a blind turn, and we don't have much visibility around it. Yeah. So then I guess the question is, like, how like how worried do you think we should be about the economy, and how much do you think this is like a non-issue that we're unfairly hyping up? I don't think we should. I don't think there's a lot of reasons right now to be super concerned. Um, so like I Biden's think, age is a much bigger problem in your view. Yeah, I mean, if I could fix one, snap my fingers and fix one thing in order to help Democrats and beat Donald Trump, I'd make Biden twenty years younger. I mean, <laughs> that would be it. Uh, the economy, I think, I think that would actually probably improve economic sentiment. Some, I think, probably some of the economic sentiment, the, the error of causation goes the other way. People don't like the economy because they're because they're upset about Biden. You know, I mean, we do have a lot of evidence that that political people's political assessments affect their economic assessments. Um, so I, I really, yeah, I mean, the age thing is a much bigger issue, I think. Yeah. So what are what are some ways that you think that Democrats can and or should stand behind Biden and make him a more viable candidate in the present day? I think th so. My big and, thing and let, let's not bring up the mainstream news debate that we spent 20 yeah, minutes yeah. on. Yeah. No, I think I think my thing for for the last six years or so, I mean, the first thing I ever wrote in the sort of public eye, you know, large national scale was uh, at the Atlantic, and I said, you know, Democrats need to understand that the, the biggest political gun co coalition in the country, the thing that unites their like pretty diverse coalition, is dislike of Donald Trump. And I think that negative, you know, negative partisanship against Trump, polarization against Trump, is a really powerful force. And if I was a Democrat, I'd spend a lot of time talking about Trump as a, as a, I mean, 
he's a rapist, honestly. He's a he's a um you know, he's a criminal. He's been now charged. Well, he's now got $460 million in judgments against him. He's got, you know, 90 felony counts coming up. He tried to overthrow the government. He's he can't finish a sentence without rambling on incoherently. And I'd be like, this guy is a disaster and he's he'd be a disaster for the country. You know, I mean, you don't have to love Biden. You just just do you want him to be president? You should be scared of him. Um, that I honestly think that the worse people feel about Trump, the better they'll feel about Biden. How how well has that tactic worked in the past in your estimation? I think it's worked pretty well. I mean, I think that that's sort of why you see Democrats overperforming in 2018, 2020. And well, they didn't really overperform in 2020. Well, 2020 they, was they very close. Trump. They beat Trump. but Very you know, narrowly. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but not in the popular vote. I mean, the, the electoral vote doesn't really count for, you know, I mean, you know, obviously you got to keep it in mind if you're running a campaign. But if you're trying to evaluate who's who's popular, I mean, you won't look at the, the popular vote. Um, the, uh, in 2022, I mean, 2022 was a big overperformance and, and, um, a lot of it seemed to be people who were freaked out by kind of extremist Trumpist candidates. I mean, you know, a lot of the cases, you know, the, that's where my understanding is that's where most of the overperformance came from was these like Senate races with total whack jobs. Um, and you know, the biggest whack job of all is currently, <laughs> currently their like undisputed leader of their party. Mine is Nikki Haley. Well, then the, why why do you think he's the undisputed leader of their party if you think that he's like he has the potential to be so unpopular? Well, you have a, you know, I mean, you, certainly anyone who who has <laughs> complaints about the left understands this dynamic within a small community. You can have people who are really popular and have ideas that are you know widely accepted. But, you know, among the broader population, it can be quite toxic. Um, and I think it's, you know, very much the case on, you know, Democrats only tend to notice this dynamic when it's happening on their side. They're really worried about defund the police or whatever, but I'm like the biggest, you know, the, well, I think that they should have been the countries, the leader of the other party. <laughs> yeah. But they should have been worried about the defund the police. Cause it was like a terrible and extremely unpopular, like slogan. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that actually hurt them. To be honest, you can look at the support when the, when the slogans and it didn't nothing really changed that much. I mean, I know, I don't, I'm not saying you should, they should have been out there campaigning on defund the police. I mean, you know, for sure. Like. Like it's pretty radical and you, you know, just, just, you know, it's fine steering clear of it. But I don't think that there's a lot of evidence. I mean, and what really the reason for that, I think, is that in 2020 and really ever since 2016, the defining issue in American politics, the issue that has commanded everyone's attention, you know, is Trump. I mean, that's politics. American politics has basically become about Donald Trump and will probably remain so until he dies or, you know, becomes a dictator. And so like that, you know, Democrats have this weird thing where they keep trying to avoid the fact that this is the most salient issue. He is always the most salient issue. And uh, I think that, you know, you can't, you know, just stop trying to dodge it. <laughs> He's it's you know, he got to got to run against the guy that is running against you. Will Stansel, thank you so much for taking the time to come <laughs> on to the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify podbean or wherever you listen to your podcasts until next time goodbye